Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Over the years, On Call with the Prairie Dock has investigated many subjects, unique cases, and everyday maladies. There have been a few stories that, while interesting, we were not able to produce for our regular episodes. This is our opportunity to take a look at a few of what we are calling Prairie Dock Insights. Tonight, On Call with the Prairie Dock, celebrating our 20th season. Good evening, I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger. Tonight, we continue to celebrate 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information brought to you through the On Call with the Prairie Doc program. Each of our four Prairie Docs tells us about a medical topic of personal interest to them. First up, Dr. Andrew Ellsworth. Living in our rural communities can make it difficult to deliver medical care over the distances and in the environment we are given. Andrew tells us about a program called Frontier and Rural Medicine, or FARM, offered at the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine. Riley, tell me about where you are in the process of your medical education. You bet. Danny and I are both in our fourth year of medical school. Um, medical school has three parts. There's a bookwork, a general clinicals, and a specialty clinicals. So we did the book work, we did our general clinicals as part of the farm program, which we're going to be discussing today in various rural communities, and now we are in the specialty clinical portions where we're in the bigger hospitals in the state doing that. And so you're in your fourth year of medical in school? In our fourth year. And so next year then you'll go on to residency, it That's might correct. be three, four, five years, mm -hmm. and this is all after four years of college, so you're... Yes. Over halfway there, maybe. <laughs> We're getting there. Getting there. Tell me about the farm program, please. The farm program is the Frontier and Rural Medicine program. The University of South Dakota School of Medicine sponsors this program. So each year, 10 or now 11 students are selected out of each class to participate in the rural medicine track throughout and like South Dakota. 70 students in a class? Yes. So yep. There are nine different uh, sites throughout the state. Um, so I was placed in Pierce, South Dakota, and Riley was placed in Winter. Mm -hmm. um, so throughout our time in the farm program, the advantage is that we work with a smaller number of providers. So we know the physicians in the town very well. Um, as a result, we gain their trust and rapport, and we are um, allowed to participate a little bit more closely in patient care than some of our colleagues are. How long were you there then? We were there for nine months. Do you feel like you got to know the community? Definitely. So part of the, one of the requirements of the program is a community service project. And so um, beyond being in the community and wanting to integrate ourselves in the community, it's actually required. Um, so. While we were there, we participated in probably a couple of different activities, mm -hmm. um, got involved in some of the local groups, um, got to know a few of the people who lived in the town outside of the hospital as well. Yeah. 
Riley, what were some of the benefits to the program, do you feel? Like Danny said, the benefit of the program is being able to work alongside just a smaller group of providers. I think that's the key. And, and being in the community, of course. Um, I think that we were able to gain the trust of our patients simply because we were seeing them month to month, um, which for a student in Sioux Falls may not be the case because you're bouncing between clinics so frequently. And as a result of that, you know, we have the privilege to administer medical care to a patient, right? It's not something that we impose ourselves um, upon a person, but we really are invited into that. You're part of the team. Mm -hmm, part of the team. And so we were really able to realize that even more than maybe some of our classmates were. Yeah, how would you compare your experience to some of your classmates? My schedule was different than a lot of the rest of our classmates. So the people in Sioux Falls or Rapid City or Yankton have a more rigid schedule and so they're told which hours are going to be in which clinics um, and what they're going to do and which days they're going to participate in each specialty. In the farm program there was a lot more flexibility and some of that comes along with having lower patient volumes in those communities and so if I was scheduled to be on the hospitalist service with the hospitalized patients, but someone was having a baby, I was welcome to leave that service and go and assist in delivering the baby and then return to whatever it was I was doing. Where in the bigger campuses, that, that's not an option because there was someone else that was um, on the OB service that would have had that privilege to help deliver that baby. And so in Sioux Falls, it's a little bit more rigid. Everyone stays with what they're scheduled to do. Um, we're in the farm program, it was much more um, flexible, and so we had the opportunity to participate in many more things than some of our colleagues did. Uh, yeah, I would say that we crossed departments frequently. So you could go from inpatient hospital to the emergency room to labor and delivery back to the hospital again. Did you get more continuity of care? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so there was a few instances where you might be in the emergency room, a patient comes in needing a surgery, and so you watch the surgery, assist with the surgery oftentimes, you know, actually helping the surgeon, and then follow them throughout their hospitalized, their hospitalization, and then at the end, uh, see them in the clinic for follow-up. And so you could see the same patient many times over the course of a month, where for that to happen in Sioux Falls, you have to be in the right place at the right time instead of intentionally making that happen. That's great. You're getting to see the care of the patient throughout all these different steps. Mm -hmm. Danielle, when you are now interviewing for residency programs across the country, is this a program that they're very familiar with in other places in the country? This seems like a very foreign concept to many of the places where I've interviewed. Um, it is a talking point in nearly every interview. Um, they want to know more about this program, what I learned from the program, um, what I gained from the program, and how I'm a stronger applicant because of it. And I think that's been demonstrated multiple times uh, throughout the interview season already. What are some of those strengths, Riley? Well, just as an example, I was recently in Louisiana. Medical students go and they rotate um, at the location that they might want to, you know, work at later on in life, okay, or, or receive their training at, we'll say. 
So one of the places that I might pursue training is in Louisiana. And I was sitting next to a couple other students from medical schools across the United States and they asked us how many of a specific procedure will say like suturing or maintaining an airway, okay? And, and when you say maintain an airway, what does that mean? Yeah, so um, yeah, in this case, I was sitting next to a couple students and we were asked to indicate how many times we had worked with a patient's airway. And maintaining an airway is sometimes putting in a breathing tube or just assisting with breathing process, performing ventilation. Which can be very important. To which is saving. very important. Yep, absolutely. And under the watchful guy, watchful eye, excuse me, of my physician um, in winter, I had performed this procedure mm, a number of times. We'll say more than 20 times. Whereas my counterparts going to Tulane or universities in California had only performed this procedure two or three times. Mm. Wow. And I think that is directly related to the level of rapport I had with my patients and the level of trust that we had been able to establish with our attending physicians. Because I know that Danny had the exact same experience. Yeah. Additionally, I think what comes along with that is the confidence in these procedures. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter which procedure it is, whether it's sewing up a cut or putting a breathing tube in someone or helping with surgery. Um, the more you do it, the more confident you're going to be. And so we won't have this period of um, lack of confidence in the beginning of residency. Um, hopefully from this, we'll have the confidence to do these procedures from the beginning instead of earning that six months into the residency training. Danielle, this farm program, is it only for students that are interested in primary care or rural care? The people who are That's likely to apply for it are the people who are interested in rural care and primary care. But participating in the program does not restrict which specialty you can end up in long term. So even though I participated in the farm program, I'm applying to emergency medicine, which is not always considered a primary care field. I think a large percentage of people who participate in it do end up in primary care, uh, but certainly not all of them. Sure, and I've heard that there's students that have gone into all the, all the specialties. Yes. We have one who participated with us who's going into general surgery this year, and also a few going into family medicine and OB and um, it's you're really not restricted. Would you feel more comfortable returning to a rural area after going through this program? Absolutely and even the general surgeon um, among our classmates is planning to practice in a rural environment. Um, as you know uh, in places like Parkston or, or even in Brookings here which is a larger town but still maybe considered rural you certainly have general surgeons um, taking care of procedures like uh, colonoscopies, gallbladders, appendectomies. And so our classmate Kayla, she, she's planning on coming back to a small town in South Dakota. Great. On the interview trail for you, um, did you happen to have any experiences yet where you really saw, it was an eye-opener where you saw the benefit of the program compared to other places in the country? I think similar to Riley, that was prior to the interview trail when we were doing our away rotations or external rotations at other places. 
again, I was more confident in procedures. You know, I was, instead of asking one of the residents or the physicians to help me find the supplies I needed, I was comfortable finding the supply closet and then um, getting everything I needed. So comfort in procedures is one thing and also being comfortable being trusted by the physicians. That's something that unfortunately in the beginning of medical school you can end up watching a lot and there's a definitely a transition from watching someone practice medicine to practicing medicine yourself and I think the people who participate in farm likely already made that transition before residency even starts. And on the interview trail, then we have the opportunity to talk about what that felt like. And um, I've gotten very good feedback about um, that feeling. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the small things like making a phone call to a specialist, right? So someone comes in with chest pain and you have to call the cardiologist. I would say that many of our classmates or folks from other programs across the nation may not be comfortable with that simply as a medical student. But that was something that I did, you know, on a relatively frequent basis as a part of the farm program. We were constantly contacting our colleagues. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I think of in many big cities, I mean, that you behind the attending, the main physician, you might have a senior resident, and then a, a intern resident, and then and you know the medical students are going to be the bottom of the totem pole for the learning opportunities. And yeah. Here, you guys are number one doing doing these great things. Daniel, what made you interested in the farm program to begin with? When I started medical school, I was planning on pursuing rural family medicine, and so uh, the farm program seemed like the perfect track to get me to where I wanted to go. Obviously, over the year my plans changed and I ended up liking emergency medicine just as well and even better. Um, so originally... Which we also need in rural places for sure. So my interest in the farm program was because I wanted to do rural family medicine from the beginning um, and since then I've found my passion in a different area of the hospital. She'll be back. I mean, she'll absolutely <laughs> be in a small town in South Dakota or somewhere in the western United States. Riley is right. I'm not going to end up in a huge city for the rest of my life. Riley, what made you interested in the farm program? The farm program was the primary reason I chose to attend the University of South Dakota. And it was because of the opportunity that I would have to get involved with the community, get to know uh, the folks around town, get involved with whether it's a high school athletic team or churches, organizations in town. That's just what I like to do. I like to get to know people um, and just become part of the family. Danielle, Riley, thanks so much for coming here and doing this interview and helping to spread the word about the farm program. You betcha. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. There are many challenges, but by planting the seeds that show the value and reward of a rural medicine practice, programs such as FARM will continue to grow and provide dedicated doctors for the future. Doctors are people and of course have a variety of interests that lie outside their normal career. Occasionally, these avocations generate connections that take advantage of their medical skills. Dr. Jill Cruz has flown to great heights due to her passion for aviation. Well, I wear many hats at the clinic and the hospital, but one of my favorite hats to wear is when I'm an AME, or Aviation Medical Examiner. And what an Aviation Medical Examiner is, is a physician 
who does medical exams on behalf of the FAA to make sure a pilot is safe to be a pilot in command of an airplane. So every time before a pilot gets into a plane, they do a very careful pre-check of the plane to make sure that the aircraft is airworthy. My job as an AME is to make sure the pilot is airworthy and nothing bad will happen to them or no foreseeable medical conditions would incapacitate them or make them where they were unsafe to pilot the plane. As an AME, there are two different uh, classes of it. There's a basic AME and then there's a senior AME. And the senior AMEs are able to do flight physicals for class one, two, and three, where a basic AME can do flight physicals for classes two and three. There are only four senior AMEs in the state, and here in Brookings, we are lucky to have two of those four. So we do get lots of airmen from really all over the state, and actually I have had uh, international pilots coming in that are coming to South Dakota for flight training that have come to me for their medical certificates. There are three different types of medical certificates. The first one is class one. Those are for the air transport pilots. So you think of someone who is flying a big plane, multiple engines with multiple passengers. So someone who's flying for United, for Southwest, for a big commercial airliner. The second class is class two. Those pilots are the ones that are doing commercial pilots. So uh, spray planes, aerial applicators, aerial firefighters, um, corporate jets, med flights, so those sort of things where it's, they're getting paid to fly, uh, but it's a smaller plane. And then class three is for your private pilots and to get a student pilot certification. So those are people who are not doing this to get paid, they're just doing it for fun. Um, that would be the class that I would have because I fly because I love to. I don't fly for money, and I have a great time doing so. So those are the three basic classes of flight physicals. Now once you have had one of those, you would qualify to do what is called basic med. And basic med is not a flight physical that's done by an aviation medical examiner, but it's one that's done by your family doctor. And those are physicals that just came out in the last few years for private pilots that don't want to go through an AME since they're so few and they're sometimes hard to find and hard to get in with. Uh, if you're just gonna be flying in the contiguous US and you're not having a complex airplane, you're just flying a small airplane with your friends, six seats or less, then you can do basic med. But you first have to have a class one, two, or three before you can downgrade to a basic med. And if you're interested in that, do talk about it with your family doctor because that's who is supposed to be doing it. It's supposed to be someone who knows you and knows your medical history well to make sure that they think that you would be safe to fly an airplane. So with that, there are some doctors that don't feel comfortable with that because of the different things that go into flying an airplane. We think about this when we're at altitude, there's different air pressure, so the air is thinner. So the higher you get, you could uh, exacerbate problems, especially with breathing, so someone who has asthma, someone who has emphysema, someone who has had heart problems in the past, all of those could get worse. So we need to take that into consideration because little planes like this one are not pressurized like the large commercial jets. Now, I'm definitely not getting anywhere near a United plane when I'm flying in this one, uh, aside from when I'm getting close to land and they're landing, but that is something you have to take 
uh, into awareness because if you get too high, the air gets too thin, you can get what's called hypoxia, which is a decreased amount of blood uh, going to the tissues, and that can relate in loss of consciousness. And that's a very bad thing when you're flying an airplane. So we want to make sure that everyone's healthy enough for their heart, for their lungs, to fly in an airplane. And that's where my job as an AME comes in, is to make sure that you are. Because when you're flying an airplane, you can't exactly pull over to the side of the road and get out if you have a problem. If you have a problem, you are in the air and that becomes an in-flight emergency. And if you're the only pilot on board, that's kind of a big deal. So we want to make sure that if there's any in-flight emergencies we could prevent or mitigate the risk for, we want to do that. So there are 10 main disqualifying conditions that the FAA has that says, you know, if you have these conditions, it's probably not a good idea if you fly. And most of them are related to heart issues, are related to seizure disorders, are related to uncontrolled uh, depression or uh, psychosis. So we basically don't want anyone in an airplane that could hurt themselves or hurt others with their flying. Because the last thing we would want to do is to have an in-flight emergency or someone use a plane to intentionally hurt themselves or someone else. So that's where those uh, main 10 conditions come into play. Now, if you have one, say that you had a seizure when you were five because you had a really high fever, the FAA is going to look at that and say, we need more information. You know, was it truly only one time when you were five and your temperature was 104? That's no big deal. If we can get records from your doctor to, you know, substantiate that to say you've never had any problems, they will probably say, you know what, we can issue you the certificate and we can get it to you. If you had a seizure two weeks ago and you come into me as an AME and say, hey, I would like to get my flight physical, I'm going to say, I politely have to defer. And a deferral doesn't mean you're never going to get your certificate. It means I can't tell you yes right now, the FAA is going to need more information. So they're going to get information from you, they're going to get information from your physician, they want to get a copy of your medical records, and then they're going to go over that with a fine tooth comb to make sure that you can fly safely. And their goal is to get people flying safely. And 99% of the time, we are able to get pilots that want to fly able to fly safely. We may put restrictions like you cannot be the pilot in command or you cannot fly after dark or you cannot fly uh, when we need to use certain light signals. So there may be restrictions on what you can do just like we have restrictions for people driving. I, I've, a lot of pilots, the main restriction I put on is must have your glasses. So as long as we can get you seeing, hearing, and know that there probably won't be any foreseeable loss of consciousness, heart or lung issues, most of the time we can get you certified. Now, if it does have to go to FAA, unfortunately, it does take a long process and it can take three to six months to hear back from them and get that approval. The good news is that doesn't prevent someone who wants to fly from flying, it just prevents them from flying by themselves. So I see lots of students that all of a sudden want to fly, say, hey, I've got this history of asthma, I need to get information from my doctor, I have to get a lung function study, I have to show records of the medications I'm on. I can't issue them right away because they don't meet all the criteria and then I have to wait. That doesn't mean they have to put their flight training on hold or their 
uh, career and education on hold. It just means they can't fly by themselves. If they're in the plane with an instructor, that is completely safe and fine because there's someone else watching and able to take the controls from them should there be any issue or an emergency while in flight. So the AME's job is basically make sure you're healthy and happy and I love to get pilots in the air and help them any way they can to make sure that they can fly and fly safely. Um, my biggest rule of thumb is would I get in the plane with this pilot and if the answer is yes then I'm going to do what I can to make sure that they meet all the criteria and then I can certify them. Most of the time, the same day I see them, they can walk out with their certificate in hand. So it's a really fun way for me to share my love of aviation with other pilots. I always like to see pictures of airplanes. I like to show off uh, the club plane that I get to fly. And we talk about our love of, of aviation. So my job's make sure they're safe and we all have a great time and go off into the wild blue yonder. From the wild blue yonder to the intricacies of our genes and how they affect the impact medicines have when they are administered. Dr. Deborah Johnston tells us about this brave new world of pharmacogenomics. Is the study of how our genes and medications interact with one another. And so uh, when we think about how historically medications have been dosed, uh, you can use a medication or uh, um, a physician will prescribe a medication. Uh, to, uh, to a patient based on a number of studies that have been done over several years, um, several years of practice, several years of research. Um, but what we understand about medications historically is that uh, use a certain medication or a certain uh, dosage of medication to treat a population or a certain disease state. Precision medicine, in which we really focus on trying to understand what the genes tell us about how our body works and how our bodies break down medications, and how our bodies uh, transport and get rid of medications. What do genes have to do with how our body processes medications? Sure. Our genes are generally responsible for doing something in the body, right? When any of our genes, any of us have a gene that ultimately usually produces a protein or tells our body to do something. We call that pharmacodynamics. That's, that's how a medication affects our body. And we, we expect that it does something, but we also know that sometimes it has side effects. Our bodies don't want medications to be there, and so ultimately we'll take that medication and try to get rid of it, try to transform it, try to change it, break it down, get it out of the body ultimately. And so that process is called pharmacokinetics. And so the combination of the two, pharmacodynamics or pharmacokinetics, is ultimately, um, ultimately what, what, is, what we understand of, of how medications are dosed, how they're used. Our bodies will produce, uh, take a gene, the gene will make a protein, the protein does something. Either it breaks down a medication or transports a medication. And so ultimately those processes are all wrapped up in this, this pharmacogenomics process. So I have heard both the term pharmacogenomics mm -hmm. and the term pharmacogenetics. Sure. And they seem to be used interchangeably. Is it the, does it mean the same thing or are there differences between those two concepts? Pharmacogenomics and pharmacogenetics are oftentimes interchanged. Uh, we casually just interchange them all the time. There is a formal difference between the two. When we talk about pharmacogenetics, typically the focus is on a single gene or a single drug gene interaction. So we might think about how uh, an enzyme uh, or a protein breaks down um, a medication or transforms a medication uh, so we might take a pain medication, for instance, and, and understand how, how uh, uh, one, of our, one of our genes uh, is responsible for breaking down that medication. 
that single drug and single gene is really, we would call formally pharmacogenetics. Pharmacogenomics, anytime we put the term omics on the end of a word, so we might say genomics, pharmacogenomics, uh, proteomics, etc., cetera, uh, that term really means that we're talking about uh, large data sets. So we might talk about multiple genes. We might talk about a gene panel. Uh, but ultimately, it's responsible for many genes and oftentimes many different medications or many different outcomes or disease states. And typically, omics requires the use of computing, uh, high, um, high-powered computing, in order to understand the, the all the makeup and all the inter, uh, the interactions between those uh, those many different parts. So when we look at our genes and how our bodies process medication, is there usually a one-to-one -one correlation with one gene being responsible for one medication? Oftentimes, no. Uh, straightforward. Uh, there, there are many different genes and many different processes that all in, are all responsible for how our bodies break down and clear and get rid of medications. So, so oftentimes, no. It's not just one medic. Or excuse me. It's not just one uh, particular gene. It's it's a combination of many different things. However, uh, the data does show us, and and you know, years of research and years of clinical practice have shown us that that many times there are some medications that that do have a single uh, more predominant gene that will will affect its its metabolism, and so when we when we look at these medications in clinical practice, um, and and the guidelines that we have for these medications, uh, oftentimes, um, oftentimes there will be certain certain direct pathways, certain genes in particular for certain medications that are most predominant and most profound. The uh, the 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 alternative or the the other way of uh, uh, the opposite effect. Um, is that we have many different genes that we know of. And, and so oftentimes it's not just a single gene that we have to focus on, but many different genes. And so oftentimes in clinical practice, we will run a panel of, of different genes and different genetic tests that will help us to understand how many different medications actually interact with our bodies. So does it work the other way? Can my medications affect the way my genes work? There are times in which medications can affect how our, our body processes work and can affect. So if we expect that our genetics tells us, tells our body to do something, there are some times where uh, certain medications, certain, certain interactions can come in and, and kind of short circuit that process. So really um, changing the way that we would normally expect that process to work, uh, the way that we would expect our body to break down a medication, um, there are some times in which some of the medications we take can interact with that and actually change how that process works. Can you give us an example of a medication where my genes might really affect the way that medicine works for me? Sure, I can give you a couple, uh, let's, uh, but we'll, we'll keep it brief. Uh, so we'll start with uh, a pain medication. So we're all familiar with opioids uh, or, or medications, they're strong medications that are used for pain. Um, the opioids, especially um, codeine and tramadol, which I think many of us are familiar with, are medications that are, are again, commonly used for pain. Uh, these medications in most people, about 75% of the population, uh, or one in, uh, excuse me, three in four individuals work just fine. They're, 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 we would call these people normal metabolizers. They break down or they, they metabolize the drug appropriately. Um, however, there is a certain percentage of the population that will either break down the medication or change the medication or metabolize, we would say, too fast or too slow. 
And, and when that happens, that can either lead to toxicity with the medication, so we'll have side effects. Usually that's, uh, it slows our respiratory or our breathing rate. Or um, we, can, we can have certain cases in which the drug just won't work at all. And, and so uh, either one of those conditions can, can work at any given time. There are literally uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of these examples that we can point to with certain medications. But that is one that I think most people would probably be familiar with. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So I know that you are a cancer researcher in, in a very fundamental way. How does pharmacogenomics and pharmacogenetics play into what you do? From a perspective of from research, we have uh, kind of knowingly given patients across the spectrum the same drug, understanding that many of them will be responsive or non-responsive to those therapies. Because you and I are different in our DNA, in small ways, we can actually predict a little bit better now responses to given uh, both chemotherapies as well as many other kind of standard therapies uh, based on our, our DNA structure. From a research perspective, we are continuing to understand, understand that. Some of them are very well known to certain chemotherapy drugs. Um, but, but others are just beginning to be understood. Um, and as we get more and more patient data, and patient data is the key thing. Okay, you had a really good response to therapy or you had a really bad adverse reaction to a drug. M many of the, those things are predictable now based on what our genetic code um, is doing for a, a given drug. And so it's becoming much more practical to actually starting understanding what drugs should be given or shouldn't be given, probably more importantly, to patients based on that. So now is that a difference based on my own genetics or is that a mutation in the tumor that you're dealing with? So there's two different aspects. In tumors, we know that they respond to therapies based on their mutational code. But for pharmacogenomics, it's actually your normal DNA. We've known for a long time that cancers is a, it's basically a mutation in that that has caused that cancer to grow abnormally. It should be growing normally. But those are very different. Those are different than what we're looking at for your ability to respond to it. Um, your, your normal cells responding to a drug versus your cancer cells. Is there a role in treating your cancer for testing the, the cancer's DNA? Yes. Our ability to go through the entire cancer genome, which took the first time they did it over 10 years in about two hours, has been one of those things that are called accelerators that allow us to be able to really detect that. So currently we are just open a protocol that every patient with cancer or precancerous lesion will have access to having their whole genome. Their own individual genome. The cancer, their cancer genome. Their cancer genome. Completely looked at and we can actually then predict response to given chemotherapy drugs based, based on that. But as important as your DNA, so your DNA that's the building blocks, but it has to get, it kind of has to be photocopied. And that goes into its structure called RNA, which makes the protein, which is where the action occurs, right? And so we actually, and we know that sometimes the DNA doesn't get photocopied. So we actually are looking at both the DNA and does that mutation get what's called translated into an RNA, 
which makes the protein. And so those things are, are have become, they will be standard of care just like you getting an x-ray. They'll be standard of care within years. New therapies, like I think that when I was in practice my first 20 years, 13 new drugs got developed. Last year, 43 got developed. And so it, because we under, have that basic understanding now, we understand much more how to treat those individual cancers. You mentioned that the first time we sequenced the human genome, it took 10 years to do that. And now you can sequence a person's cancer, the entire genome, in two hours. How does that play into developing our mRNA vaccine that we all think about for COVID? In the same way, um, so a virus is very similar to a cancer. It goes in, causes those genetic changes to happen within the cell. They can get that what used to take us years to be able to detect what was going on in the cell now can be done in, in hours to minutes. And so as soon as that infection occurs, we can actually sequence it and know exactly what's going on. And that helps lead to um, our ability to, to make a vaccine as quickly. I mean, I think the first vaccines took years to, to actually make. Um, but to be more predictive, to make our RNA vaccines um, and the other um, adenoviral vaccines that were used to actually treat COVID. So it, it does apply to other things other than just cancer, our ability to really rapidly look at those building blocks that cause many of the changes that go on in a cell. It's just incredible, the explosion in technology in the last, in our careers. In our career. Yeah. We would, how would you know that you're going to be doing a lot of genomic medicine? You know, even would in, not have guessed. Yeah. <laughs> would not have guessed. And I imagine you wouldn't have either. I wouldn't have either. In fact, that I'd have to know, you know, yes. much more beyond yes. what the DNA is, but how important it is in our practice. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to sit down and talk with us and educate our viewers about DNA, pharmacogenomics, and cancer treatment. Thank you. Nice to see everybody. There is great value in knowing how our bodies differ in their sensitivity and reaction to the drugs we are given. And after a drug is prescribed, what is the process and who is the person who translates the medical language on the written prescription to the bottle of pills we take home? I had the opportunity to sit down with Dan Hansen, Dean of the South Dakota State University College of Pharmacy. Dean Hansen talked about the multiple roles a pharmacist may have and their impact on choosing the best medication for a patient. So before I was a physician in training, a medical student or a resident, I really didn't have a clue how much pharmacists did in our healthcare system, how they worked in, as part of our team to help patients. And here at SDSU, we have a program that are training all of our region's up-and-coming pharmacists. So tell us, what do pharmacists do in healthcare that probably the average person or, or patient doesn't see when they're interacting with our healthcare system? Oftentimes, everyone recognizes their pharmacists at the corner drugstore, right? right. So whether you're going to a, a local mom-and-pop type of pharmacy or one of the chain pharmacies, that uh, person or that enterprise is the most accessible healthcare practitioner really in the entire healthcare system. They're open oftentimes, you know, early in the morning, late into the evening, some are even open 24 hours. And, and that's really just one piece of pharmacy. Certainly they're there to help with uh, filling prescriptions and answering questions, giving immunizations, but really wherever there's medicine involved, there's typically a pharmacist involved as well. And yeah. so we have uh, pharmacists and 
health clinics, so whether that's uh, locally at, at physician clinics, like here in, in Brookings at Avera and, yeah. and other places, but then also uh, within health systems, hospitals, rounding with physicians, answering questions that nurses and providers have and, and things like that. And then certainly within all your specialty areas as well, mm -hmm. uh, all the way from infectious disease to transplant and things like that. I can count many times when a pharmacist has saved me either extra work when they already had the expertise or really saved, saved us from mistakes. They're really important for the quality of what we do in patient care in a lot of settings. In the hospital, you're definitely probably having a pharmacist oversee a lot of things that go on with medication orders right. there. Yeah. Right. So an essential part of the team, but you're right, probably retail pharmacists are where our patients actually see them face to face the most. What would you say is the special expertise of pharmacists? What do pharmacists bring? Um, how, what, what skills and knowledge can patients get from those people? Yeah, so pharmacists are really designed to be the medication experts. Mm -hmm. And you think about uh, a physician or a PA or a nurse practitioner, their expertise is in, in diagnostics, trying to figure out what the issue, either acute or chronic, might be. And so pharmacists, I think, can really help uh, manage some of the chronic disease states, especially within the medications involved in treating things like diabetes or high blood pressure, if somebody's on a blood thinner, things like that. And so mm -hmm. working in conjunction with the patient and the provider to make sure that uh, the therapy or the medication that's being used is being used appropriately, mm -hmm. that dosages don't need to be adjusted, that there's no potential for interactions and things like that. That's really where their expertise is when you look at the model, the yeah. healthcare model. How can a patient better utilize the expertise of those pharmacists in day-to-day -day life? And so maybe that's at the retail pharmacy or elsewhere. But Yeah. You know, I think it depends on where they tend to go. I think mm -hmm. Uh, certainly if you're in a medical clinic where there's a pharmacist present trying to utilize that individual because they have access to your medical record and mm -hmm. in a communication with your provider. But certainly uh, in the community setting, uh, using that individual, if you go there to fill your prescriptions and you're looking to buy over-the-counter medication or, or maybe a doctor suggests a new medication, talking about possible interactions and is it safe. And then certainly uh, now with immunizations and, mm -hmm. and whether that's COVID or flu, um, you know, whether it's um, Shingrix for shingles or travel immunizations, pharmacists and pharmacies are accessible all times of the day to be able to give those shots. And, and I think that's a huge public health advantage. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you bring up vaccines because I don't, I, when do you think pharmacies started being such an essential role player in vaccines? We saw them play a huge role in the rollout of our COVID vaccines this year, um, but they've been giving flu shots for quite a long time, yeah. but I assume that's not always been the case. When did that change? About 20 years ago, yeah. really, uh, here in the state of South Dakota. So when I graduated from pharmacy school, it was still pretty new in our curriculum mm -hmm. that we trained pharmacists to do that. And now it's it done right away in the first year. So our students will give thousands of immunizations by the time they graduate. Yeah. I actually saw a statistic just last week that pharmacists gave more flu vaccines last year than any other health profession. And so mm -hmm. I think oftentimes we think about it in nursing and yeah. things like that, but again, just the sheer accessibility of, of pharmacies and pharmacists helps mm -hmm. them be an important component of that. Yeah, they've been crucial this year. So um, tell us a little bit about the graduates of our SDSU College of Pharmacy. What did most of your graduates go on to do? Where do they go? What type of pharmacy are they practicing? Yeah, so our students tend to come back or go back to where they're from. So if you look at SDSU in general, kind of a 200, 250 mile radius around Brookings. And so our students tend to go back to those communities. Uh, we're I always say a net importer of students, so we have students that come from outside of South Dakota to go to SDSU and then tend to keep sure. them here. Mm -hmm. uh, but our students, when we 
graduated class of 65 pharmacists, uh, a little over half will actually go on to do a residency. Mm -hmm. And so uh, additional year or two of training is needed to really go into some of those specialty areas. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you want to be a pediatric pharmacist or oncology pharmacist, sure. somebody who works in pharmacogenomics, you're going to have to do one, probably two years of additional residency uh, mm -hmm. above and beyond graduation. So about 50% there, probably another 40% or so will go into community pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And then kind of everybody else's other, whether that's a consultant pharmacy or, you know, something else within industry or something like that is really where we see our students go. And that's been a pretty dramatic shift over the last few years. I would say probably 10 years ago, it was 70% community pharmacy, 30% mm -hmm. residency and other things. Yeah. And now you're seeing a pretty distinct um, majority going into residencies and further training. Sure. And I'm sure there's also places in research and academia where a small number of people go, not unlike other branches of medicine. Right. Yeah. Regulatory pharmacy and those yeah. types of things, especially with trying to move more and more medications through the approval process and into the market and things like that. I find as a physician, my pharmacist, we have a pharmacist in our clinic, which has been amazing, or the use of our community pharmacist helpful when we're talking about drug interactions, people who are on a lot of medications and trying to minimize that, or even, you know, small things like making changes in doses of mm -hmm. insulin and stuff like that. So I would, I, I hope this enlightens our patients to really know what our pharmacists can do for them and how they can help. So I really appreciate you educating us a little bit about that. Go Jacks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I've got our expert pharmacist here, Dean Dan Hansen of the SESU College of Pharmacy, and I want to pick your brain on a topic yeah. that I spend a ton of time thinking about and talking about with my patients, which is over-the-counter medications. Um, so just because some of these medications are over-the-counter does not make them 100% safe for everybody, um, and they definitely have the potential for harm. We see it often. So I'd like to just run through some commonly used medications. Let's talk about what they're used for, who should be cautious with them, yeah. and what kind of problems they can cause, all right? Let's go. All Let's right. start with aspirin. Yeah. Tell us about aspirin. So aspirin is a, an older medication. Yeah. Uh, I always joke that it'd be interesting to see aspirin go through the drug approval process right? today. Because um, <laughs> I don't know that it would necessarily fly, fly through. Um, and so you think about aspirin, common pain reliever. Uh, it's used you know, widely and, and often and, and for that purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've also seen over the years it used in cardiovascular to decrease cardiovascular risk, mm -hmm. which there's been some recent reports on maybe we shouldn't be suggesting that at the, right. the rate in which we have been historically. Uh, and you also see some studies that show that it may decrease the chances of colon cancer. And so there's more research being done around there, whether daily exposure or daily intake or regular intake might decrease colon cancer. Biggest thing with uh, aspirin in the general population is obviously it increases bleeding, which mm -hmm. is why it's nice to use as a cardiovascular medication. But uh, it also has high risk for GI upset, like yeah. ulcers and things like that. And then it should never be used in children. Uh, mm -hmm. Increased risk of Rye syndrome, so really anyone under the age 18 shouldn't be using aspirin over the counter without approval from a, a physician. Yeah, I think there was a point in time where across the board, a lot of physicians were telling all their adult patients to take a baby aspirin every day, and we're definitely rethinking of that. So worth talking to your health yeah. provider about that. And it always is a balance of yes. risk and reward, right? Mm -hmm. You know, 
every medication has a risk of side effects and, and harmful events and things like that, but are the benefits outweigh those risks? And, mm -hmm. and that's where the, where the discussion needs to take right. place. Um, okay, how about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs? So this would be like ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin, or naproxen or Aleve. Tell us about good things and downfalls of these. Yeah, meds. pretty safe class of medications overall. I think, you know, things you have to be obviously used for things like fever, pain, inflammation, mm -hmm. uh, that type of stuff. As mm -hmm. the name suggests, anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So anytime there's inflammation present, it's a, it's a good, good medication to choose. Over-the-counter, uh, doses are a little bit lower. Obviously, some of those prescriptions are available by a prescription sure. at higher doses and things like that. Same thing, GI upset, chances mm -hmm. of ulcers and, and things like that. Also, you have to be careful from a long-term aspect. You know, using those medications not only increases the chance of ulcers, but if you use them for headaches and then um, use it regularly for, for say, seven uh, to 10 days mm -hmm. and then bounce off, you can get rebound headaches yeah. and, and things like that sure. as well. And so just watching um, how long you use it, how often you use it, and making sure that, um, you know, if it's a long-term use, again, you're following up with a provider or physician to, to sure. talk about other options. Yeah. I also caution my patients with kidney disease or cardiovascular disease that some, some of those patients probably should stay away from these types of meds. How about acetaminophen or Tylenol? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. You mm -hmm. know, Tylenol is great for, for pain, for fever. Um, you know, like ibuprofen and, and uh, the NSAIDs mm -hmm. uh, that we talked about, commonly used in children and infants. Mm -hmm. And so I'd also talk about dosing and making sure you're getting proper yes. dosing and, and some of those types of things. But the other thing with Tylenol that you have to worry about, one is um, overall dosage and mm -hmm. making sure that you're not taking too much Tylenol. Mm -hmm. Tylenol is, tends to be in a lot of other products, whether sure. that's cough and cold products or, or um, things like that. And so mm -hmm. making sure that you're not getting an overdose of Tylenol. Mm -hmm. And um, the biggest side effects with Tylenol is, is probably liver toxicity, which again is why it's important to make sure that uh, if you look at over-the-counter recommendations, three grams or less mm -hmm. uh, when you look at your total daily dosage. Yeah. Um, but really, you know, overall, again, I would say a relatively safe medication yeah. if used properly. Yeah as long as you're not overdosing, really safe. And don't take with alcohol. Yeah. Let's hit one more, I think we've got time. My personal least favorite, maybe over-the-counter medicine, diphenhydramine or yeah. Benadryl. Tell us about that. So Benadryl- why, why is someone who takes care of older people yeah. hate diphenhydramine? So beer's criteria, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, Benadryl is a very effective antihistamine. Mm -hmm. It's an old antihistamine, so class one antihistamine, which means that it's prone to cause drowsiness, dizziness, um, and also cause urinary problems. And so yeah. when you think about elderly population, dizziness can lead to increase of falls, and certainly there's uh, mm -hmm. often issues with urinary, urinary issues, and so it can make those worse. Yeah. Uh, I think if someone's looking for an antihistamine, uh, it's nice if it's maybe an allergic reaction or mm -hmm. bug bites and looking to help sleep and prevent itching and stuff mm -hmm. at, at night, but in the right population. In children, it can actually cause the opposite of drowsiness and right. cause some hyperactivity and things like that. So yeah. it's always good to, to monitor that. But in general, I would say class two antihistamines tend to be a better choice. Things sure. like uh, loratadine or claritin and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, just lots of side effects with diphenhydramine. You find it a lot of sleep products, which mm -hmm. I think patients take these over-the-counter sleep products and they can have lots of side effects. So and anti-nausea, motion, yeah. motion sickness medications yeah. and things too. Good. Well, thank you, Dan, for helping us learn a little bit yeah. more about these commonly used medications. Um, we appreciate that, and we, we appreciate our pharmacists. Yeah. Another great reason to talk to your pharmacist before you're buying over the Absolutely. Yeah, so. drug interactions. 
The medical community is composed of many people with many jobs, all of whom have as a goal to make you healthy when you are sick and keep you well in your life. We'll be back after this. Thank all of you for inviting us into your homes and giving us the opportunity tonight to explore some stories of personal interest to our Prairie Docs. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. The nature of medicine tends to showcase the science and technology of treatment. The truth is that healthcare is about a relationship. Humanity in medicine, next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Prairie Doc programs have provided truthful, tested, and timely medical information for 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a board member for the Healing Words Foundation. Please join us as we celebrate this milestone, offering healthcare information in our state and across the region. Rick and Joni Holm began this mission years ago. And every week since then, our Prairie Docs and other medical professionals volunteer many hours to share science-based truth about healthcare on public television, on the radio, in our newspapers, and online. And best of all, everyone has free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. I ask you to consider making a donation. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. Mm -hmm.